Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 19, the last book of the Bible. And uh, while you're turning there, I'll remind you that uh, our tradition here, we celebrate God's faithfulness and generosity to us through the month of November, and then we concluded on this Sunday with, with um, our commitment cards, making our prayerful commitment to Him. Maybe you've done it online. There are cards in your pew, uh, or they've been mailed to you, and we'll do that uh, with a bit of uh, uh, prayer and a contemplation at the end of the service, right after the sermon. We'll have some quiet moments to consider that worshipfully and respond to His grace by that commitment to give. And we do it by faith, not knowing what is ahead, helps us to plan a little bit, it keeps us accountable, but uh, we will do that and turn our cards in and then, or you'll drop them in the box as you leave. And we'll end the service with a benediction. What a great day of thankfulness. What a great day it is to hear your voices. A great day to see so many of you gathered in one place. Uh, much love to you and thank you for loving us so well. We're grateful for you. Our study this morning is Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. We've been going through this book chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, through the month of, through the Advent season, we'll go back to chapter 14. We skipped those verses in order to save them for Advent, so fear not, we won't miss a single verse. We'll go back to chapter 14 and study it through Advent and show the parallels with the Gospels. But here we come to a scene that has become somewhat familiar to us in this book, a scene of judgment, but none as intense as this one. And we're tempted to wonder, aren't we, why these, uh, these kinds of things have to be included in the Bible? And, and is it a, why does he have to scare us like this? But that's to fail to understand the real purpose of the book of Revelation. Although the book of Revelation has been used that way in the contemporary church as a, as a means of frightening people into the kingdom, scaring people into salvation. But the people who originally received this letter didn't need to be any more afraid than they already were. They were being persecuted. They were being, they were being hunted and killed. So this book was written through John by Jesus Christ to encourage and strengthen the church of Jesus Christ. So when he gives this description of judgment, it is ultimately for the encouragement of those who have taken Christ as your personal Savior and submitted to Him as Lord. If that is true for you, you read this with confidence, not with cowering fear. If you're still rebelling against Him, there is good reason to be afraid, and may He become your Savior before the end of this service. So with our hearts prepared to meet Christ and experience afresh the gospel, we begin reading in verse 11 of Revelation 19. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." 
The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with the beast, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God will stand forever. A few years ago, I read a news story about a woman named Elizabeth Bailey. She's an elementary school teacher at a Catholic school, St. Aloysius Catholic School in Springfield, Illinois, and she has a wonderful tradition of, of writing to the author, uh, one of the authors of one of the children's books, her students study that year, and she asked the author to write a personal letter to her students. And uh, every year, one of the authors agrees to that, and you can imagine the thrill of that little classroom as they are holding the book of this famous author, but now hearing the personal words, the words of that author personally written, spoken to this classroom. One year she wrote to David Catro, famous illustrator and author of some 70 children's books and and a syndicated illustrator in over a thousand newspapers, uh, most famous perhaps for his illustrations in Horton Hears a Who and Despicable Me. She wrote to David Catro and said, would you write my children, my students, a letter? He readily agreed. But one day while he was driving from his, uh, his home in Ohio, Through Illinois, he realized he was close to St. Aloysius, and so he decided to one-up the letter, and he just pulled into the school, went into Mrs. Bailey's classroom, and said, I'm David Catro. I'd like to say a word to you and also draw a picture for you. You can imagine the thrill of the kids. Someone who not only spoke to them, but showed up personally and passionately demonstrated his art and skill in their presence. The Word became flesh. John's favorite title for Jesus, favorite name for Jesus is 
logos. We get logic from it in English, and logos is translated in this passage word. John uses it in his gospel when he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Logos was a word well known by the Greeks. It had been used since the time of Heraclitus, a philosopher, to refer to that that determinative principle out there, something that is ultimate, something that's bigger than all of us, something by which the universe is held together. But by the time John is writing to these Christians in Asia, Asia Minor, writing the book of Revelation, they didn't, these people didn't know philosophers, most of these didn't know philosophers, they certainly didn't know Heraclitus, but they knew this word logos and they had the instinct to know it refers to that spiritual something out there. There is something transcendent to us that explains reality, but that's the most they knew. John says, this logos whom you are vaguely aware of has put on flesh. He has a name. His name is Jesus. He's come to us personally and passionately and because he has, we have to embrace him. We have to imitate that principle of the word becoming flesh personally and passionately. Look how it comes out in this text beginning in verses 11 and 12. He says that he saw, John says, he saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. We've studied all of this imagery before. We don't have to exegete it quite with the same detail. We know the white horse is a horse of victory. Christ is the one seated on it. He's the one named faithful and true. He is the righteous one who makes war and brings judgment. We've said all along the whole book of Revelation, if you don't remember anything else, is about Jesus winning. But what we see in these verses 11 through 14 is that Jesus, as the Word of God, comes down to us and convinces us, comes down to us and speaks to us and convinces us that the Word, He comes down and speaks to us, is a Word worthy of embracing, one that can be trusted. The heavens are opened, He rides down, the Word of God does, And he brings us his word that can be trusted. Let's think about that for a moment. What does it mean that he came down? I want you to think for a moment of the journey. That journey of God coming down in Christ did not begin in the manger in Bethlehem. It began long before. This this effort This initiation of God to come down to us personally, to speak to us a word that would transform, that uh, that would comfort, that would get us home, that would cause us to be victorious. It began at creation. God didn't have to create. He is self-sufficient, but he chose to create, to create the world and to create those who would reflect his image in human beings in the world. 
And by making us in his image, he entered into a relationship with us. Then we fell, we rebelled against him through Adam and Eve, rebelled against that goodness, rebelled against that intimate relationship, that, that ability to hear him speak daily in the cool of the day. They rebelled against him. And that could have been it for God. He could have said, I didn't need him in the first place. Now they're more trouble than they're worth. But instead he pursued. He pursued them with the word. He pursued them through a covenant, a unilateral covenant, a binding of himself, not a contract, but one by which he bound himself to redeem us. He spoke the word, I will redeem you through the seed of the woman. He bound himself to do that. Then the work of redemption began. Back then, at the dawn of, I mean, the earliest days of creation, he pursued. And all along, he is revealing to every human being that he is there. Paul says in Romans 1 that every human being knows the, through what has been created, the invisible attributes of God. His eternal power, His divine glory. We know it because He has made it known to us. He has imprinted it on our consciences. We are aware that there is a God with whom we have to do. John says this in his gospel, John 1, that the true light that gives light to all men was coming into the world. You know what that means? It means that God all this time, from the dawn of creation until the time that Jesus showed up on earth, God was revealing himself. He was singing to the creation. He was speaking. He was pursuing, not this through a generic, vague, knowledge in the back of our consciences, but through the person of Christ. Paul puts it all together this way in the verses inscribed in our skylight, around our skylight out there, that the one who said, let light shine in the darkness, is the one who has shown his light into our hearts to reveal the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Every human being on the face of the earth has been shown the light of God's knowledge. They don't know the person necessarily, but the person who is shining that light is Christ. He is the one who is calling to every human being, come to me, come to me, come to me. And when you come to Christ, when you understand the gospel, when you receive his gift of salvation, when you submit yourself to him, then the light bulb really goes off and you understand that 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 vague imprint, that, that, that distant knowledge, that, that impression in the middle of the night or on a starry night like we had last night, or in the, the quietness of your, of your sleep, you know that that was Christ calling to you all along. And you understand that that, that vague word from the creation has been spoken to you by one who has a face, who put on flesh 
and blood and came to speak to you and me in person and reveal to us who the Father is. No matter where you are, physically, no matter where you are spiritually, if you're in the sound of my voice, Jesus Christ is calling to you today, not by my voice, not because I'm the Christ, but because his word, when it is read and preached, is Christ calling to you ever more clearly than he has given you in your conscience. And he's calling to you, if you have never come to Christ, he's calling to you to say, come to me. I'll release you of your burdens that are crushing you. I'll bring you into a righteous relationship with myself. But maybe you've known Christ, but, and, but now you're estranged from him because you're so bitter against him. You, you, you're, you're trying to turn your back on him. You're trying to run away from him. But the same one who pursued Adam and Eve in the garden is the same one pursuing you today, saying, come back to me. If you, maybe you've known him for a long time and you know he's true and you know he's faithful, but you are terrified and you're disoriented and you're frightened and that Christ is speaking to you saying, I know what it is to live in your place. I know what it feels like. I know what you're going through. I can empathize with you. And he pursues you with a face. This word pursues you personally saying, come to me. I'm not sure I can believe that. I'm not sure I can trust him. I've known that he was sovereign. I've known that he was, was good, but I don't see right now, given my disappointment, given my disorientation, I don't see how they can, they can go together. Well, Jesus adds this. Look at verse 13. He puts actions to his words. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The Greeks, the Roman citizens, those to whom John is writing knew of gods, but they only knew them to be detached. They knew of gods who demanded blood and demanded sacrifice, but they had never heard anything like this. A God who comes in the flesh to find us, who moves in to our neighborhood to be near us, and then sheds his blood to make us right with himself. He seals every promise he makes to you by his blood. You may not be able to understand why you're going through what you're going through why you have the past that you do, why he's not answering your prayers as you envision the best way for them to be answered. But you may know this, that this one who comes to you personally and says, I am with you and I will complete my good work begun in you and I cause all things to work together for the good of them who love me and call according to my purpose. The one who says, I know the plans for you. Every one of those promises is sealed in his blood. Something like this. A number of years ago, a friend of mine, young family just starting out in his career, rented a home from a very generous family and 
And that home had a very large backyard, and in the middle of it was a, a swimming pool. It had two parts to it, a regular swimming pool and then a, a, a smaller one. And though it was smaller, it was still deep. He had a July the 4th party, and uh, he was trying to manage things, the grill and so forth, and keep up with his three kids. And in the middle of all of the fun, he heard his wife scream, where is Creed? First thought, the pool. Ran to the big pool, wasn't there. Ran to the little pool, and there was Creed, already blue on the bottom of the pool. Without thinking at all, he hurled himself into that little pool, which meant that he scraped and scarred and bruised himself to get to his son. Pulled him out as an old lifeguard. He pumped the water out, and Creed is a young, strapping, a strapping young man today. But think of how Creed has gone through life. He, he had this vague sense that there was, there was a, a, somebody out there speaking constantly around him. When he was in the womb, he heard his father's voice. And when he was born, he would have recognized that father's voice. And eventually, he came to understand words like, I love you. I care for you. I'm here to protect you. And then came the day that his father proved it, shedding his own blood. And even now, when his dad wears shorts in the summer, he sees those scars. He's known that word his entire existence. He's heard it spoken now in words that he could understand, and then it was proved to him by the loving sacrifice of his father. That's Christ to you. The Word of God has come personally. He sealed it with His blood and He calls you to embrace it with hope, with confidence. But that Word not only comes to us in that self-sacrificial way, it comes to us passionately. Jesus Christ came to us passionately. He came gladly. There's another place in the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs, when, when, this, when Christ is referred to as wisdom, and wisdom is with the Father when the world was being created, and wisdom not only helped him create, but wisdom delighted in those who were created. God, Jesus comes to you not reluctantly, begrudgingly. He comes with delight. One theologian puts it this way, John's idea of the Logos does not show us a God who is serenely detached, but a God who is passionately involved. The Logos speaks of God's coming where we are, taking our nature upon himself, entering the world's struggle and out of this agony, winning men's salvation. Just what does Jesus come as the word of God into our lives? As he expresses himself, to us, to the Holy Spirit, working by and with this written word that we have, just how does he demonstrate his passion for us? He demonstrates it in 
passionately ruling us. Our catechism says, question 26, our catechism says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? He executeth the office of a king by once subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, and by conquering all his and our enemies. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, as our king, rules us. That's in verses 15 and 16. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. He speaks the word. It becomes inscripturated in the Bible. But through it, he strikes down nations. He rules with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is not just his sovereignty described over the church. He's describing his sovereignty over the whole world. That everything he says in his word, including what, we re- write, uh, what, we, what we've read today, will come about. Jesus is winning and Jesus will win. Now, where do I get that sovereign rule in this passage? It comes, oddly enough, you might say, from verse 16, his name. His name is written King of kings and Lord of lords. But you say, now, wait a minute. Doesn't it say earlier in our text that no one knows his name? How do we put those two together? Well, in the ancient world, to know one's name or to name someone was in a sense to exert control over them, to gain a bit of control over them. If you could name someone or if you could get their name, it would tell you something about who they were or from whom they came. So in uh, my old world where my people come from in Scotland, I would have been Robert's son. I would have been the son of Robert. And knowing my people, they would have probably said, oh, here comes the son of Robert. Make sure you don't loan him anything and uh, don't let him tarry around too much. You could size somebody up by their name. But Jesus in his earthly ministry, demonstrated that no one was able to gain a handle on him, to gain any control over him by naming him. There are three or four encounters in the, in the Gospels in which demons try to name Jesus. Oh, you are the Holy One. Well, it's true that he was the Holy One. That's a description of his characteristic, but that's not his name. That is not to define him. That is not to know his essence. And instead, Jesus would always turn the tables and he would name the demons. And by naming them, he would exert control over them and send them out. Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords. He rules over us with absolute power. No one can conquer him. And what's more, what did he tell us in chapter 2, verse 17? He gives us a name that no one else knows. Why does he tell us that? Here we begin to understand it. He gives us that name that no one else knows except him because By naming us in that way, no one else is able to conquer us. No one else is able to threaten us. We are protected by Christ himself who is unconquerable. It's a blessing to be ruled by Christ. You don't want to be ruled by yourself. You don't want to be ruled by other people's opinions or other people's laws. You want to be ruled by Christ. 
If you're not submitting to him, if you think that you don't, his, his rules are too narrow, if you, if you think that, that you'll get along much better by doing things your own way, you're on a fool's errand. There's only freedom, there's only liberation, there's only security in being under the absolute rule of the sovereign Christ. Total goodness with total sovereignty equals total trustworthiness. The second thing we need to know about this passion, he passionately rules us. The word, the, the, the word made flesh also passionately defends us. Where do I get that? Verse 15, from his mouth or by his voice comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations. His voice. He speaks the word not only to tell us what to do but to defend us. It's a beautiful image of it in Psalm 104. The word of God goes forth. The voice of God goes forth in the creation. It causes the, it, it causes the, uh, the, the cattle to calve. It, it twists and breaks and, and destroys and shakes. Why? Why this shaking and twisting and rattling of the creation? He says, in order to give strength to his people and bless us with peace. The Word of God comes to us not to terrify us, not to make us unsettled. It comes passionately in the voice of God to defend us, to convince us, and to announce to all of His cosmic enemies, this one belongs to me. Leave him alone. Leave her alone. Third thing is this passionate Word, the Word of God in Jesus Christ does for us is to avenge us. Verses 17 to 21, this is disturbing language. Birds gorging on the flesh of animals and people. And then notice the, the, the categories of people named, of captains and, uh, and horses and riders and kings forces and systems and, and officials and the, the, the people and the, and the programs that were causing terror for the church. He says, all of them, I'm taking notes on everyone who oppresses you as my child and I will judge them unless they repent. And not only them, I'm going to the source I'm going to get the prophet too, the false worldviews, and I'm going to get the devil himself. I will capture him and throw him into that, that stream, that, that lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Hell itself will be destroyed, we'll learn in the next chapter. Why this explicit, this ultimate furious language? Because we need it. We need this, this understanding as we look at, the, as we look at the, 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 the forces of evil in our lives that we've experienced personally. As we look at the forces of evil throughout this world causing injustice and famine and, and, uh, and, and terror among image bearers. As we look at the forces even in our city destroying people made in the image of God. 
we can become consumed with anger and bitterness and hopelessness unless we understand. Jesus knows it. Jesus is taking note of it and will someday bring a very satisfying judgment against all that is not submitted to his gracious rule. I had a parishioner once who was a healthcare provider in Israel for many years. And he said uh, that he, he dealt, he, 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 he treated a number of Holocaust victims, a number of their, their physical maladies were either directly related to the Holocaust experience, the, the, the encampment, the, the concentration camps and so forth, or psychosomatically related. And he said he tried desperately to encourage them, and, but it would fall flat. He was so young, he didn't even, he, he didn't remember those days. He was a, a Gentile, he was an American, he, he had no way of empathizing. He said there was only one statement he finally found that could calm them. And he would say, this is not all there is. The day is not finished yet. The judgment day of God is coming. Only a perfectly, infallibly just God, only an omnipresent God, an all-seeing God, all-knowing God, an everywhere-present God, only that kind of God is able to assure us who are on his side in Christ that perfect justice will come and I can live in hope until it does. Jesus uses passionate language in this passage and other places to communicate just that point to us. The word of God in Christ has come to us personally and passionately. About five or six years into my uh, ministry, when I started out, I was, and this was, I was, a, I was barely thirty when this, when I hit the wall. If you're a pastor, or if you're in a people helping profession, you know what I mean by that. You hit the wall. You're so exhausted emotionally or physically, or spiritually that even the easiest things become too hard to do. You have to take a break. You have to get an interruption. You have to have some rest. And if, you, if, if, if that doesn't happen, you, you go on, and not only does it become impossible to do your job, it really can become impossible to do life. You can despair of life itself. It is happening uh, in great measure among my colleagues in the ministry throughout the country, throughout the world, and you and people helping professions are probably suffering the same, the weariness, the exhaustion that comes from the kind of experience we've had for the last couple of years. So I didn't know exactly what I was going through, and <clears throat> but I knew I needed prayer, so I thought, who am I going to who am I going to ask? So I, I thought of two elders on my session who were 
especially close friends. They were true friends. They were faithful friends. So I call them up, but they were, I knew they were very busy men too. One ran a big bank, another ran a big law practice. And so I, I call them up, so I'm not going to take much of your time. And the law, all kinds of people are lined up trying to get answers from you and so forth. All I need you, you to do is pray. Just pray for me. I'm, uh, I, I'm exhausted. That's the only word I know to say. I'm, I'm exhausted. Just pray for me. Well, they assured me they would pray for me. And I believed them. And I had a little bit of respite. I went back. I had some new focus to my study. I went on studying my sermon. But about 20 minutes uh, later, my door opened without a knock, and they let themselves in, and they sat down. I was embarrassed that they came. I said, I feel like the boy who cried wolf. I mean, it wasn't that serious. All I need is a little prayer. You can help me, help me out that way. Don't take away from your big, important jobs. You need to go back. Go back. Go back. They sh shushed me. They had legal pads in there with them and pens and they said, George, we're, there's no way we would stay in our offices when our beloved friend and pastor says he has a need. And we are here to write down everything that is burdening you so that we can take it off your plate until you can rest and recover. So they started their list. Okay, you're running the building program. We need to get you out of that. David, you're going to do that. And uh, we need to get you out of this uh, Sunday school program that you're doing. Okay, Gary, you're going to do that. And then uh, we need to, uh, then uh, you obviously need some new clothes. When's the last time you bought clothes? We need to do that. Why are you driving those three little babies around in a Ford Festiva? That's just not right. We need to work on that. And so when they got through, they, they got to the end, and the only thing left that they left me with was preaching on Sunday mornings. They said, we can't do that. You, you need to do that. And those men have never left me. They've followed me wherever I've gone. They've found me with their words of encouragement. One, and they're far away now, but one has been to Memphis twice in the last week. That's a long way for him. It was the word made flesh. It's one thing to say, we're going to pray for you. We love you. We're with you. We got you. We'll zoom it over to you. Send you a postcard. It's another thing to show up. We're here in the flesh with our words. This is what Christ has done for us. Calls us to embrace it. It also calls us to imitate it. This is what you and I can do for each other. I've shared my own story to say even a pastor needs this kind of incarnational love. You need it. We need it from you. We heard a powerful sermon last week from Todd where he challenged us to, to regather. I, I understand you all are here, the ones I'm looking at in this. I know you're gathered. There are others watching or listening in the future. And some of you have a good reason not to be here. It's, it's, you, you still need to protect yourselves. But, uh, most don't. It's become too easy to stay away. Now, God has blessed us financially and, 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 and 
and uh, God has uh, encouraged us, overwhelmed us with generosity. So we're not saying we want you to come here because we need more money. We're saying it because we need you. We need each other to speak and incarnate the gospel to one another. I don't know how to explain it. You know, and, and I don't have to anymore because the pandemic has made us appreciate how important physical presence is. And when someone is, is possessed by the Holy Spirit, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, when you bring the Holy Spirit close to someone else and you speak the word and of, of, of encouragement from Scripture to one another, there is a power that can't be duplicated through a screen. When the Bible says, Hebrews 10, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. It doesn't follow. The writer doesn't follow by saying, so you need to start gathering. Instead, he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. In other words, gathering, the way to encourage, how do we encourage? How do we, how do we infuse one another with encouragement by gathering. I need you. We need each other. You need your brothers and sisters. And there's no duplicating the power of the personal and passionate presence of the Word of God in the people of God worshiping the great God. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for leaving your Father's throne and coming to tabernacle in our midst. You pitched your tent right in the middle of our world, taking up everything in our place so that you truly still as one having flesh and blood still at the right hand of God can empathize with us as a high priest. We thank you for revealing this word to us. Please bring it savingly to those who have yet to receive it and to the rest of us, encourage us with it and, and cause us, Lord, to imitate it as we take it to one another, as we take it to our neighbors and our neighborhoods. We pray it in the strong name of Christ and for his sake. God's people said, amen.